Welcome to the College Church Sabbath School Podcast, where each week Pastor Anar Ram and Elder Roger Prather will be diving into the weekly lesson from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The congregation at the College Church has made it their motto to love, grow, and serve. We really want to learn to love more, grow more, and serve more. It is our hope that through these conversations, we can learn to better serve our congregation, our local community, and the world. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you are blessed with today's conversation. Are we recording? All righty. Welcome to the College Church Sabbath School podcast as we are looking at what is called lesson number 11 in a quarterly called Managing for the Master. Uh, the dates are March 11 through 17, subtitled Managing in Tough Times. And I am Pastor Anar Ram, and with me is my friend and colleague. Roger Prather. Am I your colleague? Well, yeah. Okay. Aren't, we, aren't we all colleagues? <laughs> Megan's a colleague, and Ed's a colleague, and... But um, Roger, what's the if somebody's just tuning in? Where do we where do they read the lesson if they want to read it? That would be at http colon forward slash forward slash www.absg.adventist.org absg.adventist.org alpha bravo sahara golf and I believe Megan will put a link to that in the description below. There we go. There we go. So. Um, well, listen, let's get started here. It's an exciting lesson. So let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for being with us during the wonderful times and even the trying times. Lord, we don't know where the listeners are as they are listening to this podcast, where they are financially, spiritually, emotionally, even physically. But we leave it all in your hands, and we want to thank you that we are blessed with the moment to be able to study our, the Word of God, and we pray that as we do that, the Holy Spirit will bring to our minds and to our hearts the truths that we need to know. I pray that we have the courage to act upon that as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so managing tough time. Have you ever had a hard time? Once or twice. Once or twice, yep. Maybe we're in it now. And and uh, how do we deal with that? And it's interesting that the author starts out by putting God first. And he has us read a story in Second Chronicles. It's 22 verses. Um, but it's an interesting story, which we kind of see this motif happening quite often in Scripture where basically Jehoshaphat is a king, and guess what? There's an army that's coming that's too big for them. They're not going to be able to handle it. And so basically Jehoshaphat calls upon God, and God hears their prayer. And it's powerful in that it reminds us that it, life is a walk of faith. It's a walk of faith. And one key verse is... Uh, Verse 9, uh, this is from Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 9. If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we'll cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. 
That's really at a bold statement of faith. And they, Jehoshaphat does this, and he is at the temple, and in verse 12, we read these words, Oh, I'm sorry, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's really beautiful and profound. I think the most important part of that is the admission that you don't really know what to do or you don't have any power to overcome what you face yourself. Yep. That's probably, that's at least in my experience as a human, which I've been my whole life, <laughs> um, has been admitting that though. Mm-hmm. Right, we don't want to admit our own weaknesses. We don't want to admit our own shortcomings. Um, that's what prevents us from coming to the gospel. Oftentimes, in the first place, is the our inability or our unwillingness to recognize ourselves as sinners. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes for faith. Right, um, stopping in the circumstances of life and admitting, like, I don't really have any control here, mm-hmm. and um, I need to accept that. I'm thinking the phrase illusion of control pops into my head that so often we feel this illusion that we're in control when really we have a little bit of control. We can drive the car down the road at a certain speed, but there's so many factors that come into play. And incidentally, just the other night, we were actually sitting in this conference room two nights ago having a meeting and... I heard this loud crash, and we all, it was just three of us in the room, three guys, and it sounded like, you know, when a dumpster lid just gets dropped, it was just like that. So we look out, couldn't see anything, and then we start seeing emergency vehicles pull up, and it was actually just a little bit around this wall here, George Hill, Main Street, there was a car accident, Mm. and I'm sitting here, I don't see it. Nobody else saw it then, but then somebody came in and it said, you know, there was an accident and it was right there. But think about that. I've been in a car accident where somebody cut in front of me, told my car, and it's just, you don't plan on these things. And and uh, I don't know if somebody's going too fast or somebody ran the stop sign, who knows, but um, they were they were okay. It was, you know, the ambulance came and put them on a backboard, but... Um, you just think about that. There's so many factors out of our control. And and the other day, it, I got cleaned up really quickly here, but a tree fell down right on our lot. On our lot. And uh, it all kind of was a God one because the right people, the right place. And before the evening, I think it was cut up and removed. So, But it was where cars normally would be. Mm-hmm. And I think my car was one of those. <laughs> but there were no cars there. Anyhow... There's factors outside of our control. So, and I like the way he says here, you know, we don't have the power to face this army that's attack us. We don't, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So, uh, any and other... I, th- another important thing, a part of that, when you talk about uh, things being out of our control, the truth is that outside of a very, very narrow scope of things... Ninety-nine point nine 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 with a line over it. 
is outside of our control, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes I can't even control myself, mm-hmm. right? Can you control every thought that comes into your head? Yeah. Um, there's a lot that's beyond our control. And, you know, if I had any advice for like young people, any advice for anybody, like one of the, one of the first steps to really getting a grasp on how we should live our lives as Christians is accepting the fact that you can really only control yourself. And even that is in, is, is limited. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, um, you know, when we engage in, well, let's uh, even stewardship, right? We could have this conversation about stewardship and I could, you and I could, um, we could agree on say, um, how someone should tithe, but there's a third person in the room with us and she could disagree. And there's nothing you or I could do to force her to do that, right? Right. And a lot of times, like with evangelism and things like that, or as church leaders or as church members, we'll look at something that we don't like and we'll try to exercise control over those things. We'll try and change someone's behavior or we'll try and, you know, our goal is evangelism and discipleship. So we want to get people in the door and we want to get people believing the gospel and living out the gospel. But I can't control whether they do that or not. It's beyond my control. I can only control myself, and I can only do what God has required me to do. And that's kind of like the story about Jehoshaphat. You know, they were defending Israel. You know, they they had to accept the fact that ultimately God is the one who chooses how things go. And um, they had to throw themselves on his, his wisdom and mercy. And we have to, and that's relevant to stewardship because... The title of the lesson, Managing in Tough Times, there are times where we're going to look at our bank account or our paycheck or our cupboard or our refrigerator or the gas tank or the tuition bill or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go, there's no way I can do this and still tithe. Mm-hmm. There's no way I can do this and still give to the pathfinders like I normally do, whatever. Yep. And that's why the the lesson is, I mean, sorry, the memory text is kind of relevant. It says, offer to God Thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Pay yep. your vows. So if you made a promise to God, keep your promise. Keep your promise. Because God will keep his. So it's interesting about this word control that I think is a fascinating idol of us for the 21st century. We Control is it. I mean, look at... You know, we're in a room, it's climate control. We go in our cars, we can control the volume. What we listen to, the point of, we have our playlists of the exact songs we want. We can go home and watch Netflix and watch the exact movie. I'm speaking, I'm dating myself here, but my goodness, uh, there was three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and if there was a movie on, a show on, you had to be at your TV at 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock when Charlie Brown came on or, or Walton's or whatever, Walt Disney. And and now it's just, oh, yeah, I'll just uh, watch it at my discretion. I have these control factors. And that's not bad, but it almost gives us an illusion about, well, I can control everything. I can control everything. So this is where I think the next uh, scripture is really, really germane because uh, I feel sorry for David, King David, but he did something really bad. And he didn't, in this case, didn't commit adultery. He didn't murder anybody. He simply counted people. And it's there in First Chronicles chapter 21. 
And, and, and it's interesting, verse 1, Satan rolls up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. That's a fascinating verse right there. So David said to Joab, go, uh, and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his truths a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should we bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of men, and there's his numbers, a million, 100, etc. And then in verse 6, but Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin. It's almost like a silent protest in numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. And then, of course, then in verse 8, David said to God, I've sinned. I sinned by doing this. And take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. The Lord said, I tell you what, you have three penalties to choose from. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away uh, by the sword of your enemies, and three days of the sword of the Lord. And David chooses, because he knows that in his heart the Lord is merciful, he takes the three days of the Lord's sword. And a plague comes, and 70,000 men of Israel fall dead. And and uh, yeah, it's what what kind of getting lost in the story here. What was wrong with David wanting to know how many men he had? There's a lot of answers, but it kind of goes back to I always connected it to when Israel first asked for a king, and Samuel gives his warning mm-hmm. about what a king would do. And he said, look, he's gonna, you, you, you're going to get a king and then he's going to tax you and he's going to draft your young men into his army mm-hmm. and he's going to take your young women into his harem because that's what kings do. And what David was doing was he was behaving like a king, mm-hmm. right? He wanted to know how many, I mean, why do kings do what they do? They, they want to tax their people. And then they want to know how many able-bodied soldiers do I have in order to go on conquests and adventures and that sort of thing. And in doing so, David was relying on his own wisdom and power. He sort of got puffed up in his role as a king in this momentary indiscretion, very similar to his indiscretion with Bathsheba. Yep. And what I find interesting about this whole story, maybe I'm jumping too far ahead, from the question you asked, but what I find interesting about the story is it relates to what we were just talking about with control. 70,000 people died mm-hmm. all because of the decision of one man. Yep. They didn't have any control over that. <clears throat> no. So you don't know. It's almost like sort of like we talk about things like the butterfly effect, you know, a yep. butterfly flaps his wing in Japan and it turns into a hurricane in Florida or something. Yeah. But it's kind of true in a moral sense, right? Like our our judgments, um, what we do, have effects on other people. And sometimes we don't realize what those effects are. Yeah, very true. So it's a cautionary tale. It's very cautionary. And I think the danger is look at what man can do. The focus goes from our eyes upon God to our eyes upon us. 
And I think that's where the danger lies in all of us. Um, when, when you belong to a church, it's easy for us to say, well, I'm here and, and uh, God has saved me. And we see this a lot of times in new believers. They come into the church excited, and then they realize, hey, not everybody's as much on fire as I am. And they realize, oh, this isn't really nirvana here. This isn't uh, perfection. And the eyes begin to shift from, look at what God's done for me. He's revealed this truth. He saved me to, oh, my goodness, this Brother Jones over here or Sister Mary over there or Sister Brother Smith, you know, they got problems. And you know what's happening? So when we do that, we get deflated. We get deflated. The, or, or the other thing can happen is, wow, you go to a general conference session. I remember this years ago, and we're there in one of the Hoosier Dome or whatever it was, the domes, and you're there with tens of thousands of Adventists around the world. And you, yeah, everybody's there. It's a high Sabbath, and you're like, wow, look what we can do. <laughs> And, you know, we, whatever the count is, I stopped t- paying attention to the number of Adventists because I think sometimes they're maybe a little bit inflated, but that's my own two, two cents there. But, um, but we see it just keeps, every time you look, it's more and more people. And, and it's like, okay, so where is the focus then? Is it on my muscles or is it on, on the majesty of God? Mm. And I think that's the danger here is that... Um, our focus can change, and that's what happened with David. This was a no longer walk of faith. This was a walk of the calculator. Oh, we have a million men. They have 900,000 men. We can do this. And, and uh, where's faith? It's all about the function. It's all about the formula. And that's where I think the problem is for us as human beings is that we, we shift from faith to formula. And, and uh, David... Unfortunately, he did he was uh, he 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 dropped the ball in this one, and we we do all the time too. And I'm not saying we need to throw out our calculators, but I think there's a danger there when we are part of a dare I use the word institution, and and we can we can get off the rails, like we were talking earlier. But uh, um, you know we're we're here because this is a walk of faith, a total walk of faith. So. Which brings us to the next lesson where I think the author is trying to take us from complexities of life that we often bring upon ourselves to the simplicity to which we are called. And uh, the scripture there is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 12. And I think, um, Roger, would you read that for us? Sure. Oh, whoops, I'm in First Peter. If I had a dollar for every time I did that. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 12. First, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, following their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They will fully ignore this. Long ago, the heavens and the earth existed out of water and through water by the word of God. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded by water. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are held in store for fire, 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and one thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay. I'm sorry, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness, as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved, and the elements will melt with the heat. You know, in my library, I have a book. I can't remember. I think the title is The 100 Thing Challenge. And there was a guy who, his life was just inundated with stuff. Stuff, 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 stuff. And so he gave himself a challenge. Could he live one year with just 100 things in his life? And he just got rid of tons of stuff, expensive stuff. And he boiled it down to like, okay, he's got one camera. He's going to have one set of utensils, one set of, he was an outdoor guy, one tent, one sleeping bag. He liked camping, uh, you know, but most, 99% of the stuff he jettisoned. And I, I look at my own life and I see, you know, the stuff we accumulate. And I say this because the things, the conveniences we have today, we, we just got to remember one day it, it means nothing. It's gone. And and the other day, actually it was this morning, I was walking my dog and we have a little, some woods we can go through. And, and I had this sort of epiphany. You know, one, at one point this was all covered with, it was all covered with water and with ice. You know, it was, you know, the, the boulders get moved around and just covered with ice. One day it will all be covered with fire. It's all burned up. And I don't want to be depressed about it, but the point is, is what's really important, Roger? What is really important, and I, and I like this passage that we just read, what kind of people should we be? What kind of people should we be? So the question is, is there an area in my life that I, that I need to simplify? I need to pare things down and make it so that my life will go smoother. And, and I'm saying this because everything that, that we adopt in life has been said, oh, this will simplify your life. The computer. Granted, can you imagine doing some of the things we do today if we had, you know, the old copying machine and filing systems? I mean, the amount of records, medical records, would just be incomprehensible. It's all on the cloud. And, and uh, but you know, all these things, you know, we got to charge our phone every day, et cetera, et cetera. And and looking at the edu- the uh, entertainment options, etc. And and I would answer that question by pointing out that in the grand scope of history, and even in the world today, you and I, and most of the people listening, are in what has been termed the the one percent. Mm, yeah. Um, we are some of the most wealthiest people to ever walk the face of the earth. Big time. And there are billions of people around the world right now 
who get along just fine. Maybe not by, maybe not by our standards, but who get along just fine with all those without those things. And we've all seen the pictures of the kids in other country parts of the world playing soccer very happily with a ball of tape. It, and, and, bare, and, and bare feet on a dirt bare, field. Yep. And they're happy and just having a wonderful time. And we have to go down to the sporting goods store and buy our $29.95, uh, you know, brand name soccer ball. And, and are we better as a result of that? Yeah. And I mean, like from an education standpoint, right? Like I'm sort of philosophically opposed to the level in which we've allowed technology to invade our classrooms and Mm -hmm. you know there are still kids out there with slates and chalk and you know some of the best educated people in the history of in in history um, didn't have all the technology that Mm -hmm. we've had because you know same thing with um, speaking of which we are using pretty cool technology right now we we are and you know I don't take don't take what I'm saying is like some sort of like absolute moral judgment that I'm like some sort of like anti tech simplification is the point and mm-hmm. you can you can go to extremes in both ways I'm not saying I don't you know I, I don't think we should be you know fleeing into the woods and living in tents and and, and things like that but at the same time, I think we need to question how complicated, right? The opposite mm-hmm. of simplicity is not opulence or comfort. It's complication. It's complexity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times what we do when we adopt the ways of the world, and this applies, we're, we're talking about stewardship, so I guess I, you could put it into the, you could put it into terms. Is it? good stewardship to make your life more complex than it has to be? Mm. That's a good question. And that's a lot of times you talk about computers and cell phones and things like that, and they're supposed to simplify and make things efficient. But people, at least in the United States, um, people spend more time at work and they're earning less, Mm -hmm. right? We have um, this insanely complex healthcare system, Mm -hmm. but in terms of Western medicine, we have some of the worst health outcomes. Um, in my sociology class that I teach at the high school, uh, we talk about the McDonaldization phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? You, you create this assembly line, efficiency, cheap, and mass production. And on the surface, it seems really good, right? Until you eat at McDonald's every day and you destroy your liver and yeah. your body. So, when we talk about simplicity, you know, again, throughout this lesson or throughout this quarter, we've tried to to sort of like add on. It's not just the frame of money. When we talk about stewardship, we always tend to go to money. But when we talk about stewardship, we should be talking about resources, not just money. And so we often use our money to add complexity to our lives, mm-hmm. right? I don't want a 1,500-square-foot house. I want a 3,500-square-foot house. I don't want the... Um, I don't want the the economic uh, sedan that's reliable. Mm-hmm. I want I want the Ferrari or the Lamborghini that requires crazy maintenance because well why not? Mm-hmm. Um, whatever the case may be, and so and what I another thing I find interesting too is um, 
if we go back to uh, just real quick Sunday's lesson at the bottom, it says Second Chron- read Second Chronicles twenty twenty. What special significance should this text have mm. for Seventh Day Adventists? And it was talking that text talks about believing God's prophets, prophets. and obviously the 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 <clears throat> author is going in the direction of the spirit of prophecy in Ellen White, but the the Bible is sixty six books of prophetic revelation, mm-hmm. and when we talk about believing God's prophets, where in there does it say to make our lives more complicated? Where does it say we have to always opt for the less simple, right? And we do that in church, like the conversation we were having before we started about discipleship and evangelism and trying to get people into the doors. And a lot of times we just make it way more complicated than it has to be. You know, Jesus did things very simply. He walked up to people, he healed them, he talked to them, he developed relationships with them, and he passed that method on to 12 uneducated fishermen and ruffians, and those 12 uneducated fishermen and ruffians flipped the world upside down. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think we complicate things way too much. Mm -hmm. So I think that emphasis on simplicity is necessary. So coming back to loop back, we shouldn't be counting our men. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, we shouldn't be counting our men. (laughs) And and even in tough times, and that's what I think this is, we got to remember the lesson is, Dealing, living in tough times. So that's when, when things are hard, that's when we tend to simplify our lives. We tend to have the yard sales, the garage sales. We tend to say, well, I don't need the full cable package. I can save X hundred dollars per month if I, you know, drop off HBO, whatever it may be, which I don't have either, but anyway, to drop it off and, and they maybe slow down their internet speed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they switch mobile phone companies, et cetera. You know, just to simplify, because they realize how much money has been going out the window. And simplific- and you can also, so simplification can be a reaction to tough times, but it can also be a buffer well, against right. tough times. Because if you already live a simple life, right? Um, like, <laughs> I, tr- it, I work in a very non-humorous place. I work in a prison, and... Sometimes I try to lighten people's spirits because it can be kind of depressing. And um, so you walk in and you say, like, you know, how are you doing today? And some people are just like, well, you know, I'm here again, whatever. And I'll just be like, oh, this is, you know, it's, I'm great. You know, I'm fantastic. I'm wonderful. And they say, you know, like, well, how, how, how can you say that? We have to come to work here every day. And I, say, I always say, if you set the bar really low then you'll never be disappointed, right? If, you, if your expectation for what it means to have a good day or your expectation for what it means to have an, an abundant life is set at the right level, is properly calibrated, mm-hmm. then you're not going to be looking for complexity. And I think that's often, we develop complexity in our lives because we're looking for something to make us happy yep. in a materialist society. And then those that, that chasing after the materialist goals is what brings the onset of tough times. But if we decide that we're going to live a, a, a simplified life in a godly way, then we can sort of avoid some of those tough times. Now, some again, some things are out of our control. I can't control the inflation rate in the United States. Mm-hmm. I can't control how much money the Federal Reserve prints. Yep. But what I can do is I can, I can live my life in such a way as to minimize the impact of those things. And with the goal of it not minimizing the impact that that I have in my my contributions to the church. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. And and 
when we look at how the world has changed, you know, you have John the Baptist, who we know was out in the wilderness, with very simple life. He's there. He's the forerunner of Christ. He's the one saying, one is coming. Then Jesus, before he launches his ministry, he goes to the wilderness. 40 days, we know the story. And there's something about the clarity that comes from simplifying our lives. And and uh, I, I remember this sermon illustration I had, and uh, it's a wealthy man saying, you know, rich people aren't happier because right now somebody, they have their yacht and the microwave stopped working on the yacht. And now they got to spend time to get that yacht, that microwave fixed. So that's the thing is you think about, yeah, well, having a yacht, it sounds great, but it, everything needs to be maintained. And, and uh, so that's the thing. When we, when we invite something into our lives, we need to consider the, ampli- the, the ramifications of that. So uh, there's a good, and we're running out of time here, Roger, uh, in Matthew 6.24 about priorities, and oh my goodness, this is in of itself is a whole week's worth a lesson. And Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth, store them up in heaven. Uh, verse 21, where your treasure is, there's where your heart's going to be. Then he says, the eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. So how we see is crucial. Then the light within you is darkness. How great that is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. It's interesting because we live in a very visually based society. It's the image. We spend our days on screens. We carry them around for entertainment. We even, we even use screens to tell us how to go someplace. And, and it's interesting that that impacts the eyes, but when we look at our lives, what's our most important organ? I mean, the eyes is important because we, we, have to, we need our eyes to navigate. But when we think about it, what's, maybe there should be another organ called our hearts. <laughs> Our hearts and our minds. Um, of course, we know the senses go to our mind. But you see, what I'm saying is, 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 is Jesus is saying, make sure you got the right priorities here. Make sure you're not out uh, chasing after the wrong thing. Well, it's uh, to use a modern computing analogy. It's about input and output. Oh yeah, right. If you don't have the right inputs, you're not going to get the right outputs. Yep, and you know, you can have the most advanced scientific calculator on Earth, but if your initial calculations and the numbers you put into that calculator are wrong, your result's going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? They used to call it gigo, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, garbage in, yeah. garbage out. Oh, yeah. And the same thing applies to our minds and our lives. Yep. What are we bringing into our lives? Yep. What we bring into our lives will affect what, what comes out of our lives. Yep. And that's why priorities. And I, I mean, you could probably summarize when it talks about managing in tough times. You can summarize the whole thing with 
the idea of priorities, mm-hmm. right? Because how, how, how do we determine when we're going through tough times? Like you said, like that, that multimillionaire with his yacht that has a broken microwave, mm-hmm. you know, and he says, well, you know, I was going to take a trip to the Caribbean this weekend and now I can't because the microwave <laughs> on my yacht is not working properly. Yep. yep. Well, what's his priorities, you know? Right. Um, you know, how we, how do you define a tough time? I guess yeah. that's, that's how, that's the, the overarching question I would ask in this lesson. What is your standard for what constitutes a tough time? Right. That's a very good question. Stubbing my toe in the morning, not a good day, not a good moment. <laughs> but that compares, it's nothing in comparison to people who wonder where their next meal is coming from. And, and I think that's coming back to this. The whole theme here is tough times. Part of it is we can react to them, we can adapt. But there's something that the author didn't include, and I, I wish he had. And, and when we face tough times, this lesson, and some of our lessons are written from the me point of view. And, and I have a book on a digital form that I read. Uh, it's called Welcome to Meville. And inadvertently, we are orienting our whole lives according to me, my perspective. But we have to remember, we're, this isn't about me. It's about God. And, and, and once we realize that, it sets us free. And, and one thing that's so beautiful about the early, early church is in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Think about that for a moment. We're in need. Somebody's in need. Where do they go? Well, a lot of times they pull out the plastic, and then they max out their credit cards. When that doesn't work, they say they're in foreclosure on a car or house or or you know, be re- a car could be repossessed. And all the while, this whole economic financial drama is unfolding, oblivious to the body which they belong to. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think, and granted, this can open up a can of worms because, you know, two things you don't talk about with people is money and politics. And, and, uh, uh, you know, it would have to be really designed intentionally well to have a system where you have uh, a zero-interest loan for people who are going through a tough time, mm-hmm. you know, or just give them money and and uh, just give them money. But the point is, is uh, the early church caught on to something here that we have yet to experience in the 21st century. And, and I think that's something that we need to just explore to say, hey, if you're going through a hard time, talk to the pastor, talk to the head elder or an elder in confidence and then see what can be done. And I think that's, that's one of the benefits of being part of the family of God. And I'm looking at people who you know, maybe maybe spent years of their lives as part of the church, and they've contributed financially, physically, spiritually. You know, they've been there, mm-hmm. and then they hit a pothole, 
maybe let's say literally, and their tire goes out. And now they need a new tire or they need four new tires because they have a car that needs <laughs> more specialized tires. And so what do you do? You say, oh, man, that's, I just feel terrible for you. May God be with you. James dealt with this. May just God be with you. Or is there a way we can set up a system where, hey, I, I've got an extra, you know, 250 bucks or $500. Here it is. You know, if you get it back, you, can, you know, if you, ha- if you when it gets, if you get, you're not obligated to return it. You know, that's kind of pretty cool. Or a tire is more like $1,000, you know. But at any rate, kind of going off on a tangent here, but it's all related that we need a, we're not meant to be by ourselves in this. And we can look at our problems together. And that takes a whole lot more effort than to everybody running their own little program. Well, I think part of the problem is um, something that we don't, don't often think about or talk about or even realize and that is that we, in some sense, have our, we have one foot in one world and one foot in another world. Well, you hit the nail on the head, Roger. And, you know, to, to stick to the lesson here for one second, Thursday, March 16th, when no one can buy or sell. I was just going to go there. Our minds are thinking alike. Um, this is all eschatological. Mm-hmm. Though that group in Acts, you know, somebody might hear some, you know, like a lot of people will pick that up and be like, ah, so um, we should be communists or something ridiculous like that. And no, that's not what Acts is about. Acts is about you have this group of people and the, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully in this group of Christians. And they created this community that looked forward to the renewal of the earth. It's not that we should become communists. It's that we should be creating a community in the church where we are living a heavenly life. Mm-hmm. And in the heavenly life, there is no want. Right. And the point is that if we pool and share our resources, not in a, not in a secular sense, but in a spiritual sense, in a Christian sense, in a biblical sense, then we can, we can start to create mm-hmm. that future life here. Mm-hmm. And we can live as an example. And when people drive by the church, or when 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 people say like, you know, what's it like in your church? You know, um, do they support the right causes, or do they have the right beliefs, or something like that? Well, my church, um, we're already trying to live the heavenly life here on earth. And you know, I can tell you that uh, you know when my husband died and I couldn't pay my cable bill, or I, I didn't have electricity, or I didn't have food, or when my child was born or whatever the case may be. And we often think of it in material terms. Well, uh, you know, if that person had just planned better, mm-hmm. if they would have had the right priorities or whatever, you know, um, and we could become critical and we, that we, we shift onto that left foot rather that's outside the world rather than the right foot that's in the church. Mm-hmm. And how do you create a community like that, man? When you figure it out, you tell me because, um, it's hard. We're dealing, unfortunately, we're dealing with a whole bunch of humans. And and you and I and Megan, we're exempt. No, well, that's why we're running this show, because we've got it all figured out. No, I, I'm just kidding. Obviously, it, this, is a, this is a project of a lifetime. Yeah. It's a project of millennia. We've been at this for 2,000 years, and the church has gotten it right sometimes, and the church has gotten it wrong sometimes. Yeah. yeah. 
And what we have to recognize, and you know, I know we don't really talk about the end times a lot, not like we used to maybe, and that's not me trying to be some retrograde, you know, uh, killjoy or anything like that. But the reason we t- we should be talking about the end times, it's not just judgment and fire and brimstone. It's that we're looking for a quality of life that's available to us now because we've been, our hearts and our minds have been renewed and we should be trying to, we should be just aching for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, 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 and this goes back to our identity and that's one thing that's interesting about Revelation 13, talking about those can't buy, people can't buy and sell. As I see it, when we look at the world, it's trying to shape us into being consumers. There's a multi-billion dollar industry out there. All they want us to do is to go down to the nearest store and buy their product. Because then somebody back at headquarters either gets a bonus or gets to keep their job or the company profits goes up, whatever it may be. And there's not really an investment in you or I as a person. And and 99% of the world is doing this. Just, capitalism is, is an effective way to get the job done. Mm-hmm. It's a very effective way. But it's not a perfect way. And and we see a many a man and woman have sold their souls <laughs> for that bottom line. And whether it be cutting corners on accounting, cheating, stealing, whatever it may be, and and... Here's a group of people in the very last days who their identity is so secure in the lamb that they aren't able to buy. They, and I don't think they care that they don't buy or sell. I think they are in such a walk of faith. It's a very lofty place to attain, my friends. Very lofty. But um, it's okay because the, the God who is with them during the times of prosperity, will still be with them during the times of hardship. Well, it'll also be it will also be Jesus feeding the five thousand. Correct. It will be a group of people, and the world will say. And I'm not a prophet, but I'm speculating. You know, the world's going to say, "We don't want you to be a part of this system." Right. Right. You don't have the right beliefs, or whatever. Or we don't like your beliefs, so we're going to exclude you from our system, and therefore we're going to we're going to lock you out of this economic mm-hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. And the remnant, right, is going to be a group of people who it's not even that they don't care; they're going to be again priorities. Their mm-hmm. priority is going to be such a, a way that they're going to rely wholly on God. It's going to be it's going to be the Messiah standing there, going, you know, where they're going to be people who say. Well, it's only a couple fish and some a loaf of bread, and it's going to be the Messiah standing in our midst, who turns those fish and bread into uh, an abundance. Mm-hmm. And that's what we should we should be looking for that level of faith where we know that whatever we have is going to be enough because God provides. And yeah. if I could just offer one other analogy, and you can use this in a sermon, I, oh, I'll, well, I'll, I'll release my copyright. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, we got to we got to finish. But to, since you talked about capitalism, just real quick, the diamond trade, right? Our our mm. economic system is based on um, it's an economy of scarcity. 
Yeah. What are oh, the most is. valuable things in the world? The most valuable things in the world are the things that are scarce, right? Mm-hmm. So gold is scarce, diamonds are scarce. Well, the diamond trade is artificially scarce, right? Yeah. We don't know how many diamonds are buried all over the world. No. But the companies that control the diamond trade artificially suppress the, the supply of diamonds yep. in order to increase the cost. Yep. What the Bible, the Bible's economy is an economy of abundance. Yep. Right? The God who called everything into being with just his words yep. can control how much is produced. And we are people who worship that God. Yep. That's why we can stop work once, once a week. We don't have to work on Saturday mm-hmm. because God will provide. So I just would point that out. No, that's good. That's good. So, and, and I think that's a good note to end on. Um, there's a good quote here um, from Steps to Christ. The love of money, the desire for wealth is a golden chain that binds them, people, to Satan. And I think that's something that's cool about the gospel. It sets us free. It sets us free. The question is, do I want to be, do we want to be free? and really enjoy that full freedom. So that's something to consider, my friends, as we close our study today. Thank you for being with us. Roger, would you say a word of prayer for us? Sure. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here in this place to to produce this podcast for the benefit of others. I pray, Lord, that it will be a blessing. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us enough faith to get through tough times. Some people out there may be going through a tough time today. And I pray, Lord, that they belong to a church community that can help them through those tough times and that they can rely on you through those tough times. And I pray, Lord, that you will make this congregation, this college church, and that you will make the Seventh-day Adventist church all over the world that type of church, that church that helps people through the tough times. I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll join us on our next podcast. As we wrap up this series on Managing for the Master, may God be with you and, and bless you. If you are looking for a community, have some questions about the discussion, or would like to participate in a live Sabbath School class, please join us every Saturday at 10 a.m. for Sabbath School and 11.15 for our worship service at 337 Main Street, South Lancaster, Massachusetts. This has been a production by the College Church's Communication slash Media Ministry. If you were blessed by this podcast, please like, follow, and subscribe. Join us next week for another lesson, and let us all remember to love more, grow more, and serve more.